Like, dislike. How do those two buttons shape a social platform with millions of people every day? And can you make the world nicer if you just changed one? Yes, this week on Download This Show, could one small click for YouTube be a giant leap for people not being... Well, tools on the internet. Probably not, but worth a shot, hey. Plus, Uber being sued, Twitter have some new functions that they reckon are worth you paying them for, and which big bank is betting on Bitcoin? All of that and much more coming up. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell, and welcome to Download This Show. Yes, indeed. It is a brand new episode of Download This Show. Our guest this week, tech, media and marketing writer with the Australian Financial Review, Natasha Gilzo. Welcome back to the show. G'day, Mark. How are you going? <laughs> the pleasure's entirely right. And from Access Informatics software developer, Peter Marks, welcome back to Download This Show. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Uh, I'm going to start off talking about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies because there seems to be a range of opinions about whether or not they're good or not. <laughs> that is my extremely in-depth take on it. Uh, it looks like the Commonwealth Bank is uh, among a few banks around the world, Natasha, that are actually backing it as a yeah, category. Yeah, so this is actually a story broken by one of my colleagues, James Ayres, this week. And CBA, with its uh, app, which I'm also a user of, uh, along with 6.5 million other Australians, is going to integrate... Bitcoin that so you can track it within the actual app, which is the first Australian bank to do so. So pretty interesting stuff. Why do you reckon they're backing it, Peter? What's motivating this move? Well, cryptocurrencies, of course, are part of any diversified investment strategy these days. If you you know you're going to be buying bonds and shares and currency, then you want to have cryptocurrency as well because they have done some of them anyway. Have done really well, but the ComBank can actually look across all their account holders, and apparently they were able to see that about five hundred thousand of their customers are already trading in crypto, and I guess they'd rather have that business in house and make a bit of a margin on it than have them going to other fintech apps or crypto apps. So it's interesting because in my mind, the development of cryptocurrencies, I think more broadly, was really a reaction against the dominance that big banks have had over financial markets for the longest time. Is this crypto maturing or is that, is that how it's being regarded, Natasha? Or am I getting the complete wrong end of that stick? I mean... I think of it more as kind of like when your high school friends meet your college friends, like this moment <laughs> where it's like, how are these two worlds going to collide? Um, but the Commonwealth Bank is like, we're going to make this happen. And even if it's a little bit awkward, like these two worlds can coexist. So it'll definitely be an experiment. I think it's also, I guess, a CBA, I, I think, is still held in sort of like higher regard of legitimacy amongst the average person than cryptocurrency. So it is a bit like the nod of approval from a super mainstream trusted organization about crypto in general. So it's an interesting move. Yes, no, I think it does help to make cryptocurrencies mainstream. Now, note that the Commonwealth Bank app has limited functionality. It only lets you buy, it only lets you turn cryptocurrencies into cash or cash back into crypto. Uh, it's not just Bitcoin, by the way. They also support up to 10 currencies, including Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash, Litecoin, but not the jokey one, Dogecoin. Oh, and, devastating. You know, 
the one with the little dog, but uh, which is doing quite well. So it, it will be right there. I mean, there's other fintech apps such as Raise, which is an investment fintech app, and that has recently added crypto as a component of some of their diversified funds. So it is starting to get more mainstream. And of course, the big problem with cryptocurrencies has been the incredible volatility, the the wild prices that are you know dive up and down. I just had a look a second ago, and they, things have changed again. I won't say which way. <laughs> and so this has made it a real problem for using crypto in the way it should be used, which is to do fast, cheap payments over the internet. And so maybe if there's more people who are able to buy and sell, it will settle down the pricing a bit and, you know, we can get a more stable crypto, which can then be used. But as Tash says, cryptocurrency is the enemy of the banks because cryptocurrencies don't need a central trusted organization in order to do transactions. The trust is in the encryption and it's in the blockchain, which is a public ledger. So banks aren't actually needed at all. And this must be uh, kryptonite for them. So I think they're trying to get on board rather than let those those 500,000 customers walk away to some other sort of app for doing their financial transactions. Natasha, this is, as you mentioned earlier, is the first Australian bank. But are many banks around the world engaging in this at the moment? I think a lot of them are having to look into how they integrate crypto into the app. But if we go back to Commonwealth Bank for one moment and see it, not just from kind of the monetary or financial angle, but also the product manager angle, right? So if you're running the Commonwealth Bank app, you're also basically looking at metrics like monthly active users, how often account holders are checking the app. And Peter spoke to the volatility of Bitcoin, but that's actually an advantage. If you're a product manager, you want people to have a reason to open your app more regularly and check the Commonwealth Bank app more regularly, especially within the Commonwealth Bank app. They're integrating and pushing other products that they have, their own buy now, pay later service or personal loans or home loans or really random discounts and stuff I get push notifications for. I'm like, this is super random, but okay. So it's not just about kind of like benighting crypto as legit or not. It's also a tactic and a play to get people checking the app more frequently but what's compared the- to other financial apps. Well, I would say the plan would be to turn the CBA app, not just um, from a sort of static place that you can check what's in your accounts, but more like a power app. How do you absorb more functions into that, whether you cross-sell consumers to, like I said, other different financial products that you can access in-app. Peter, I did want to ask you a little bit about the inverse of this, right, which is, and it's sort of been alluded to earlier, which is when people are attracted to cryptocurrencies, it is often speed. And and yes, I think there has been Mm. historically some distrust of sort of mainstream financial markets. Does the involvement of a bank, not just CBA, but any bank, does it have the potential to slow that down? Well, in theory, cryptocurrency transactions can happen quite quickly, although we do know that Bitcoin, the, the biggest one, has been quite slow. It's uh, When I've bought things in the past, it's taken sort of 10 minutes to settle and things like that. So I don't know. I think the banks have actually lifted their game, possibly in response to all of this new technology. Now, it used to take days for transfers between bank accounts you know, on different banks to take place, and now I see most of them happen instantly. So you know, they are lifting their game. There's no real technical reason for that. It was just some weird clearing thing that they were doing. But look, I would say they're in this to make money too, that we don't, I think, know the fees that they're going to charge on trades. 
and of course um, th- they will be making money on it and if people are coming in all the time as Tash says and and uh, buying and selling a bit then um, they'll be making a margin on that of course if those if those rates are not competitive users will go elsewhere and there are lots of other apps and ways of uh, of trading cryptocurrency it has been a bit of a, a minefield though there have been trading organizations which were fake you know just Ponzi schemes so people are a bit scared and I guess putting a bank behind it uh, helps to allow those fears. All right. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. The guests you are hearing this week, Peter Marks, Access Informatics software developer and Natasha Gillizzo, tech media and marketing reporter with the Australian Financial Review. And I'll tell you one group that doesn't seem to have as positive a reaction to cryptocurrency. Apple. The head of Apple this week, Tim Cook, doesn't look like we're going to see integration with, uh, with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies on Apple products anytime soon, Peter. Why is that? Yeah, look, Tim Cook has revealed that he is interested in cryptocurrency and he said that he personally owns some, but he has said that Apple has no immediate plans to accept crypto as a payment for Apple products. Uh, Of course, you know, they could do it, like you could add crypto to uh, Apple Pay or Google Pay or any of these, and that would really make them uh, mainstream. But I think the problem there, as we've discussed, is volatility. You know, if you're a vendor, say you buy a a computer with someone pays you in cryptocurrency for a computer, and then that cryptocurrency drops 10% before you have time to turn it into cash, because it's cash that you've got to give your suppliers, then you you have a lot of exposure there. So I know what Apple would do. Apple would have a big margin in there. You know, they, they do this already for uh, movements in currencies. So yeah, I just think the volatility is too great at this time. But look, they are interested. One day they might turn on that switch. I don't think they would anytime soon. I feel like Apple is kind of more of a conservative company. Like they like to really get things right before they release products to market, for example, or their advertising or marketing campaign. So I feel like new payment things they'd really want to nail rather than when Tesla did it. It's kind of more like to spark interest and to be shown to be doing the new and cool thing, if not necessarily the rational thing. Um, So I just feel like it wouldn't be very Apple to roll this out unless they were really sure about how it was going to work. Download this show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. And this week, Twitter launched Twitter Blue. What is that? Well, it's a new monthly subscription service that promises to make Twitter better somehow. But Peter Marks, for the, uh, what is it, like four bucks or something you pay in Australia, what do you get? Yeah, four dollars forty nine Australian, two ninety nine US. Uh, they say it makes Twitter more customizable and more frictionless. The features include an undo button for tweets. Duh! Why didn't we have that? Hold on, articles. Hold on. Isn't there like? Can't you already like delete? You can delete, but uh, what they still haven't got is edit. You know, people make typos <laughs> in tweets all the time. Yes. And uh, you see them and you think, gee, they should be able to fix that up. There's some other features. Um, articles read through Twitter won't have ads in them for these paid users. There's bookmarks, there's theming, there's navigation customization. They've got a better way of reading threads. I mean, I should say there's external apps and services that do a lot of these things already. And finally, you get customer support. What? But of course, it's only about account issues, not things like trolling or bullying. So, you know, there's a few features there for you of $5. Hey, Tash, ad-free articles. Does that mean they're putting in an ad blocker as you click through? Is that what that is? I assume so, yeah. I think it's, um, you know, Twitter over the last couple of years has 
put in a bunch of initiatives to try and incentivize its core creators, which are often journalists or writers, uh, to stay there. So I think this is um, another step in that chain that they've been on for a while. What do you think of it more generally in terms of a service? Do you think it's worth the money? <sighs> I mean, <laughs> it's I the longest that, exhale I, ever. <laughs> I, I, look. Yeah, like it's funny. I, I'm actually a pretty big fan of social media, but Twitter is my least favorite. I always find it really messy and intense. But I guess anything that if I could like curate it and make it more personalized, I actually probably would use it m- more. So I'd be willing to try the five bucks a month thing to see. But there's so many other good ways of getting content, like from audiobook subscriptions to different kind of like news sites that it wouldn't be top of my list, but I'd be willing to try it. Yeah, to see if um, I enjoy the experience a bit more. What about you, Peter? Is it the sort of thing that you would use or, or would you think is worth the money at the very least? It, if I was a professional Twitter publisher, you know, if I was uh, promoting a news site or, or some sort of business, then, yeah, this is nothing. This this amount of money is nothing compared to what I'd probably be spending promoting tweets or, or buying advertising. These are features, though, that, you know, if they're really that good, then they would encourage people to use Twitter more, which is surely what they use. They, they do rely on advertising, so they want people to be using it more. They want it to be easier to use. Twitter's early development was based on external APIs available to developers, and the platform arguably thrived because of the good work of third-party developers. But in 2010, the company clamped down on those third-party developers. They had strict usage limits, and a lot of these features are actually in some of the third-party Twitter clients. So, you know, I feel like these are features that just should be in there. Certainly, I guess there's reasons why they don't want people to edit a tweet. I mean, if you if you make a tweet that's controversial and a lot of people retweet it and like it and then you change it, how is that going to ripple through the system? But look, to Tasha's point, I think Twitter is a different kind of social media. It, there's a certain role for it, just the sheer scale of it and the ability to see what's trending in your country and globally. It's quite different to Facebook or, you know, the other other social media. And so I think there is a role for it. It's really good for journalists and newsmakers. You know, if you just want to track and see what's, you know, you go there and Barnaby is trending. You think, well, I wonder what he said today. Yeah, but I mean, the thing you were saying about edit, though, is like everything else lets you edit, right? And provided you can see the the track of changes in the edit, which almost all of them do, I don't necessarily see why that can't be a feature on Twitter. I don't know. It would have to show the list or something had crossed out. But they, they don't forget their scale is enormous. I was reading they have 400 billion events and a petabyte of data every day, and they really struggle with that. It used to be called the fire hose of data. So, you know, maybe it is difficult. I guess it's a distributed platform around the globe, and if you edit a tweet, it probably takes time to update everywhere. I I don't know. There's probably technical reasons around it. But, yeah, what is undo if it's not edit? You know, it should just be there. Download the show is the name of the program, your guide to the week in media, technology and culture, and the U.S. Justice Department is suing Uber the ride-hailing service, uh, over allegations it's been overcharging disabled people. Natasha, what's happened? So basically the Department of Justice claims that Uber's wait time fees, which is um, additional costs that are added to the ride charge for how long it takes you to, to meet the driver before you get in the car, but they're saying that these wait time fees are discriminating against disabled passengers who just need more time than what's given before that penalty kicks in. And the argument is that Uber as a company needs to comply with the Americans with Disabilities Act legislation and that these wait time fees are not doing that. Uber's responded saying that these wait time fees were never 
meant to apply to disabled riders and that it's been refunding fees and that it's made some changes. But as we know with legal cases, it's not just what the company meant, it's what actually happened in practice. And even though they're making amends or have argued that they're making amends, the lawsuit will still look at the particular period that the Department of Justice is interested in when that wasn't the case. What is the purpose of the of charging for wait time, Pete? Like what, what is it designed to actually Well, it's actually for people for? who've yeah, they've you've ordered an Uber, which is an independent driver, and they come to the place that you said you want to be picked up and you're not there. So I guess it's somebody who's, you know, ordered it up and they've kept chatting in the party or whatever. And the driver, the poor driver has to wait. So I'm I'm sympathetic to what Uber's doing by saying, well, let's charge you while you while the driver waits for you to come out of the house and get into the car. As as Tash said, it was never meant to be about how long it takes you to get your wheelchair or whatever into the car. That's that's an unintended consequence of it. So yeah, I, I think I'm sympathetic that it's a fair idea. The driver is sitting there not making any money and they should be. They should be paid. Pete, are there other examples of this around the world? Surely this has come up a few times by now. Yes. In the UK, Paralympic medalist Jack Hunter-Spivy said that Uber and taxi drivers regularly drove off when they saw that he was a wheelchair user. Poor guy. And uh, in April, Uber was ordered to pay a blind woman in San Francisco $1.1 million after she was refused rides on 14 occasions. It's very hard to understand how this would even happen, but apparently it has happened before. But it's an example of an unintended consequence for one kind of user that unfortunately has effects on other sorts of users. Yeah, totally. I think there's kind of like two things that come out in these cases. One is the kind of the unintended consequence piece that Peter spoke to, which I think is a reflection of the fact that there isn't diversity at the table in introducing these features in the first place. And then that has the trickle down effect um, with those kind of punitive uh, consequences that the Department of Justice is arguing. But the situation where Ubers are driving off when they see passengers are using a wheelchair or crutches or a service dog. I mean, that's just blatant discrimination or um, and much more egregious in my view. So I think there's a different spectrum of issues happening that are being captured by the latest round of reporting on this. Mm. And finally here on Download This Show, you are no longer allowed to dislike things on YouTube, or at least that's the story that's been doing the rounds. Natasha, explain this to me. Yeah, so YouTube, uh, which is owned by Google, have come out the gate to say that they're going to remove the dislike count from being visible from viewers when we watch our watch our videos of, um, you know, whether it's Vogue 73 questions or <laughs> Met Gala preparation. Um, that might be specific to me. No, no, um, it turns out you and I have the same taste this. in YouTube videos. <laughs> Yes. Um, so um, you can still click dislike, but that won't be visible for the viewer. But if the person who uploaded the video, they can go and see the dislike count in their own analytics, but it's just no longer going to have that public element. Um, but they're phasing it in slowly. So if you're on YouTube this week, it may have been removed for you, but it's still visible to others. Um, it might take some time. I'm just going to load up me some YouTube and see whether I was one of the lucky people that uh, got a dislike. No, I'm still able to dislike things. What is the expectation of how it will change the community? I think this is because they're trying to fight organised groups of users who've been bulk disliking videos as a way of 
pushing an agenda or monstering the content makers. Many dislikes are lodged by people who haven't watched the whole video, and they may even be bots. So it is it is being gamed, clearly. And I don't know about you, when I put some content up on the internet and I get a like, I go, yeah, okay. If I get a dislike, I'm really concerned. I, I take the negative feedback much more seriously than I do the positive feedback for some reason. It must be just a human thing. So, you know, I will miss the dislike count because, you know, if you want to watch a video on how to fix a leaky tap or something, it's a 20-minute video and you really want to spend that time. It could just end up being a frustrating monologue telling me to watch to the end and don't forget to like, subscribe, click the notification bell, hey, dude, you know, all this kind of stuff. (laughs) And if you see a big dislike count, it might mean that this is just someone just wasting your time. I find a lot of videos, obviously, people are pandering to the YouTube algorithm. They want, you know, they, they put the one piece of information you want right at the end so you have to watch all the way through and so they're gaming the system and dislikes are a way of actually communicating that but i think other things could be done i think uh, they could weight likes and dislikes uh, multiplied by the amount of the video that someone has watched so someone who's watched more of the video has a bigger say in whether it was good or not i like that that's clever or I was thinking the other thing is if someone watches all the way to the end, they could ask you more detail. They could ask you for a five-star rating or, you know, perhaps a bit more information, a survey about the video because you are someone who has watched it all the way through. So, you know, I think there's more that could be done. If you're that engaged, you probably don't mind giving a bit of feedback to it. Do you ever thumbs up, thumbs down, Natasha, when you're on YouTube? Because I'm just trying to think about it now. Like, I think I've thumbs up like once or twice, but I don't feel like I'm giving meaningful feedback back to the YouTubers of the world. Are you? When I was younger, I I definitely did. And I would do it to encourage like new YouTubers, but I don't anymore. I think though, it's like, I've probably become a bit more educated about how every single, not that me, not us, not putting a like or a dislike protects against this, but every single way I interact online is being tracked. So I was probably a bit more trigger happy with my likes when I had less awareness around that. Whereas like now I do try and be a bit more circumspect because I don't necessarily want to get targeted with those kind of videos or a particular ad type. Um, it, it's an unstoppable beast, of course. It happens anyway, but I'm a little bit more circumspect these days. But surely the key to getting even more and even better Met Gala preparation videos is to let YouTube know that you really want to see more Met Gala prep videos and by clicking like. Oh, they've worked it out. They've worked it out. It's that and interspersed with like eight minute ab workouts. And I'm like, okay. Wow. It really is just like a Rorschach test, isn't it? I'm just getting trailers. That's all I get is trailers and and videos about stolen artifacts. I think they've got me clocked. Um, I mean, what do you think about Peter's idea earlier about, you know, something something akin to what you do in podcast apps, which is where you get get to give a star rating. Do you think that would meaningfully, well, firstly, do you think you would use it more and do you think it would have a, a different impact on the community? I think that's a really cool idea. Like it's just I love how Peter's thinking about it a bit more differently from that super binary system of you like it or you don't like it's more kind of qualitative in that sense yeah I mean it's funny because it's like with a podcast I think you feel a bit more connected to the the host whereas like YouTube it's lower friction I can kind of go across different channels and I don't feel as um, committed or close to them so I don't necessarily know if like every time you watch a YouTube video you want to be asking that person for in-depth feedback but I love the idea of the the waiting um, or kind of something something a little deeper. That would be cool. I like that. Yeah. I guess the other thing about this is that they, they haven't really done much to change the, the comment section, which I think, you know, if you want to talk about the toxicity of online communities, the comment section on YouTube, Peter, is 
is still yeah, I wouldn't say it's the nicest place on the internet. Oh, YouTube comments are rubbish and, and you know, have no, been known to be for some time. But look, sometimes, no, I'll watch a YouTube video and, it, you know, certain for certain things, as I said, how to fix a leaky tap, a short video that shows you how to do it is really valuable and I will click that like button if I can. I have to say, I watch YouTube a lot on Apple TV and I don't think you can click like. So, you know, if you're in that sort of... Uh, 10 metre away uh, mode of watching, then you, you don't even, you can't even do that. So they measure by how much you watch. But, uh, and you know, if something is valuable, but I do find a lot of the, the YouTube creators are wasting my time. They're putting something <laughs> up that should be on a text web page. You know, it should be a list of instructions, what to do. And instead they've turned that into a long, boring video with embedded ads and, you know, the information that you want is, is hidden somewhere. And all of this stuff about don't forget to like, you know, all the animations you get, just oh, really irritating. Uh, so I, I do want a dislike button there too. <laughs> Wow, it's you've been though, like, you've been burned by one too many leaky tap videos. <laughs> I have. <laughs> 20 minutes long. I think one of the things, we talk about YouTube comments being toxic, but it's actually really hard to write a comment that doesn't sound critical or mean unless you're being so over the top. Like unless you're like, I loved this, this was the best video ever. But if you provide, you know, a non-compliment sandwich type of feedback, I think just the fact that it's in text can make it look a lot crueler than if you have context for that comment so it's funny it's like you know we talk about these comments being toxic but I bet if that person said it face to face I'm not talking about straight up hate speech but just sort of more like oh you got this part wrong or do you really think this I think the flatness of the screen and the lack of context can make it land with much greater thud than (laughs) would in person I mean, that raises a slightly interesting question. It was like, we've had a few decades of the elaborate social experiment that is social media now to see how sometimes seemingly minor technical changes can have a drastic impact on how the community communicates with each other and levels of trolling and stuff like that. Are there particularly wonderful examples that you can point to, Pete, where they've made a small-ish or what would appear to be a small-ish change in, a, in the technical setup of a social online social environment that's actually had a big impact on how people treat each other? Is, are there examples that, that stand out? I think some of it works quite – I mean, there's counterexamples too. I used to use Dig a lot and then they changed ah. it. And everyone left. <laughs> like, I don't know, they must be kicking themselves. Of course, everyone went to Reddit. And uh, Reddit is pretty clever. They do make tweaks a lot. And uh, it's surprising. I, I sort of contribute to technical forums in Reddit. And they're really good discussion groups. They're a social group. And someone will say, I'm getting a memory leak on Mac OS Monterey or something. And uh, people will come in and say, we'll do this and do that. And it's, it's, I find it helpful. I help people. And uh, it's just surprising, though. Again, there are likes. Uh, I made a, a quip, I can't even remember what it was, the other day and got 500 likes. You know, it's just extraordinary how you, you just can't predict what will be liked and what won't be liked. I guess the idea of it is that you learn, but uh, it just seems somewhat arbitrary. But, yeah, look, I think they've done good things. They've got awards you can give and all sorts of little trinkets. But, it's, yeah, it can work well and be helpful. How about you, Natasha? Are there examples of small changes in, in online communities that have had a big impact on how people treat each other? Hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, not changes, but I do think that Slack as a software has done a good job. There's something about it. I think that it maybe just feels so visible or something like that, that lends itself to, I haven't seen really nasty discussions ever take place in Slack. Now, admittedly, I'm only in workplace related or kind of job related Slack groups, but there's something about the 
infrastructure of that that seems to be like people stick to the discussion and you know there's not too much nastiness going on just in what I've witnessed but um I don't know what they've managed to do but it seems like they've done a good job all right. Well, that is all we've got time for on the program this week. Huge thank you to our guests, Natasha Gillazo from the Australian Financial Review, Tech, Media and Marketing Extraordinaire. Thanks for coming back on Download This Show. Oh, thanks for having me. Another great session. Love it as always, Mark. <laughs> and from Access Informatics, software developer, also an extraordinaire. Don't think you're getting away scot-free. Peter Marks, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Mark Extraordinaire. <laughs> and with that, I shall leave you. Thanks for listening to another episode of Download This Show.